Welcome to The Legal Lowdown. I'm Diana Baudet, and today I'll be joined by Barton Gilman education attorney Jamie Fernand to talk about student discipline in online education. Jamie provides legal counsel to charter schools and private schools in New York and New Jersey. Thank you for joining me today, Jamie. Thanks for having me, Diana. So can you talk to us about how student discipline would look in terms of virtual learning? Because I know all the schools have just gotten this started, but I can imagine that there might be some discipline issues that pop up from here on out, and it must be a challenge for schools to figure out how they're going to handle discipline in terms of a virtual setting. Sure. Yeah. And I was thinking about this because, you know, a large part of our practice is handling and helping schools cope with student discipline issues that occur in traditional school setting, making sure that they set the right tone and reward students for particular behavior and also provide consequences so that they have an appropriate learning environment. And I was thinking, you know, how is this going to work? when you're moving to a remote online setting so quickly and really will there still be student discipline issues? And I imagine they would be. And how do schools respond to that? And it's something that, you know, with the COVID crisis and all the, you know, emerging things and topics that are happening that I haven't spent much time thinking about. So I've been letting that marinate for the last couple of days and just wanted to share a couple of notes and thoughts that I had to help schools maybe get in front of it and think about what they could do now to try to help address these issues when they occur and try to think about the potential issues that might occur now that probably wouldn't occur in the traditional sense. Oh, that's great. That's great. Where would you like to start with that? Do you want to start with a background of how student discipline traditionally has worked? I'm not going to get bogged down into the details, but, you know, where do schools have the authority to determine what student discipline measures they should be taking. As everyone knows, you know, charter schools are public schools and they have to abide by all federal and state law. But they do have some discretion in determining what is appropriate and what kind of learning environment they want to have for their students. Mm -hmm. But we had to be mindful of the different, you know, laws in place, such as the federal constitution, state law, the New York Charter Schools Act is a very big source schools will need to, to comply with. And then the New York Charter Schools Act, I want to just drill down a little bit on there because it does give schools the ability to make the rules and procedures that they want students to be disciplined with. Before providing any disciplinary measures or before providing any consequences, they need to give students the ability to understand what is expected of them, Okay. what acts might they be disciplined for, and what consequences or range of consequences that would result from committing such acts. Okay. And of course, that will change, you know, with a student that's a younger student or a student that's an older student. You know, there's obviously very different measures of remediation that you would apply to a kindergarten or first grade student than you would to a high school student. So most schools and all schools have to have a disciplinary code Sometimes they call it a code of conduct that lays out the different consequences and the due process procedures that come from that before imposing any disciplinary measures. Jamie, are there any special rules that apply for discipline with students with disabilities? Yes, there are special rules that apply for students with disabilities. They aren't any different than they have been in the past, meaning there's no COVID-specific requirements when you're disciplining a student with disabilities. So schools would have to be mindful of the applicable federal and state rules um, that they otherwise would have to adhere to 
when disciplining a student in a charter school setting. So by that, I mean if a student um, exceeds 10 days of suspension in the school year, they would still be required um, before moving forward for with, with any additional days. Um, MDR would have to be held, and the CSC would have to convene that. That's probably a difficult thing to do, given the setting, because ideally that would be in person. But And it, I, it's possible that it would happen remotely, um, but it would probably be more ideal to hold off on that, uh, or at least to hold off on a consequence until the schools are back in session. Okay. But schools will have to still adhere to all the different rules that were at play. Okay. So, and, and is the guidance that then, if there is some form of discipline that needs to take place after that 10-day period, that could even happen next year? Or is there going to be a threshold where the discipline is so far from the event that it just no longer makes sense? There was not a specific rule on whether or not the disciplinary measures could happen next year. Generally speaking, schools like to have all disciplinary measures happen within that same school year, but there are some situations um, with students that may carry over penalties for the following school year. This, sometimes that happens in a situation where a student is, you know, at, at, during like the last the end of year school dance or something, sure. you know, is breaking a rule, maybe, you know, drinking alcohol when they're obviously not supposed to be, where some sort of penalty might occur for the future year the student's in school. Okay, thank you. And does it matter how that information is given to students and families? It doesn't matter the form. All students should have it in a written form. Generally speaking, students are provided with an annual updated code of conduct, a student disciplinary code. Sometimes schools modify that from year to year, especially Mm -hmm. when new things come out that they want to address that they maybe didn't realize was such a big issue in their school. One of the things that I guess we're going to talk about a little bit more in detail that schools need to think about now and have been thinking about more recently is cyberbullying is one of the big ones that just pop out of my head because starting in, um, I think it was 2012, New York required as part of the Dignity for All Students Act, New York charter schools, and I think most schools in general, are required to have a policy combating cyberbullying. And that's unfortunately an area that is becoming more challenging and, and mm-hmm. has some real consequences. So, and, and that's something that I was thinking when I was trying to figure out what could possibly happen in a remote online setting that just jumped out of me. Yeah, I agree. That's the first thing I thought of is the potential uptick of that where, you know, these students are all being moved to basically a cyber world and interacting with each other and their teachers that way. That seems like it could be an issue. I mean, it used to be that you would never think about suspending or providing any disciplinary measure on a student for something that happened outside the school day because there was a big, you know, split between what happened in the brick-and-mortar school and what happened at home. Mm-hmm. But then in the, you know, the age of the Internet, where students were contacting each other electronically and potentially harassing or stalking or doing other things that, you know, impacted the educational environment, schools were taking it more seriously. And they were saying, you know, actually, we, we can and we should discipline and try to protect those students from cyberbullying and from other forms of electronic mm-hmm. harassment. So I think that's been a, come a shift, I would say, in the last 10 years as online communication has become more prevalent. Mm-hmm. And I think now that probably even more so because there isn't as much face-to-face um, and there's so much potential for what happens in an online forum to have a, 
effect on an educational learning environment. Yeah, and also you mentioned, you know, a, a traditional school day. Is there such a thing? You know, when, when teachers are engaging with students right now through a virtual classroom, is that considered the official school day, or is there no such thing right now? I think it's something that is changing day to day. Yeah, Schools are, are changing. Some schools are just sending out packets, but a lot of schools that I know are moving towards a more live instruction or mechanisms like Skype or Zoom or Facebook Live or options where you actually comes a little bit closer to a, a traditional school day where a teacher is providing a lesson. Mm-hmm. And either, sometimes you could see the students. You know, sometimes you could see all the different students on the screen and whether or not they're able to chat on the side of the screen or speak while the teacher is speaking. Honestly, I think that changes day by day. But it is important that a teacher is able to have appropriate behavior in that setting. Yeah, definitely agreed. So beyond cyberbullying, do you see any other mechanisms where student discipline might need to come into place, given our new situation? Just want to take one more second on oh, that, and sure. then I'll, I'll, I'll go into it. Just because cyberbullying is such a big area of, of the law and such a big dis- potential disruption, I just wanted to, to mention that I mean, sometimes cyberbullying could be just students saying things that maybe are unkind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other students liking it, or when I say liking it, I'm talking about, you know, the Facebook option where you could literally just press the thumbs up arrow that you like something that's unkind, that that could potentially have the effect of feeling like harassment, sure. um, feeling like, you know, interfering with the student's educational performance, or have the student fear for their emotional well-being. But there are sometimes, unfortunately, that could be more egregious. I just wanted to drill a little bit further down on what I mean when I talk about cyberbullying, and I think some people probably understand that, but just by law, at least in New York law, and I think that a lot of other states have something similar, the Students' Code of Conduct and the Dignity Act that I mentioned in New York, it has to protect against the creation of a hostile environment by conduct or threats, intimidation or abuse, and this could happen in an electronic form, which I think obviously is more in line with what we're talking about today, yeah. which would you know, have the effect, unfortunately, of substantially interfering with the student's educational performance or well-being, even in a remote setting, and cause that student to potentially fear for their physical safety, either at that time or when they come back to school or when they take a you know, walk or something. And so schools still have the responsibility to combat and address the cyberbullying, even in today's environment. I'm hoping it's not happening, but I am concerned that it's possible that you see a rise in students that encounter it. And it might be a situation where schools have to result in contacting law enforcement, because sometimes it could rise to a level of really endangering somebody's well-being. There are particular offenses for cyberbullying that even minor students could be charged with. So I'm hoping that that's not the case, but it's definitely something on my radar that I think schools might want to get ahead of. I'm just reminding everybody that there is appropriate behavior setting in the online space. Do you know, are schools doing any kind of, or are you advising them to do any sort of, I'm going to call it a temperature check? And the example I'm thinking of is my daughter is doing online learning, and it's in a Zoom setting. So she's seeing other students and they're interacting back and forth with the teacher. And she spoke to us saying everybody seemed really off and, you know, class was weird. And 
you know, we talked to her saying, well, you don't know what everybody's home life is like. So for some kids, this is really challenging. You know, they've got either siblings home or parents home, and that may be a struggle. And are schools encouraging kind of, you know, temperature checks on how students are doing and, and sort of kindness and kind of thoughtfulness among students, you know, to sort of give them a sense for you, you don't know what everybody's struggle is. So you've got to find some empathy in there. Or is that purely, you know, it should be on the parents' minds too, but just wondering what the schools might be saying about it. I think that's a good point. And I do think that mental health in general is something that's definitely on a lot of people's minds and, and everybody's coping differently. And we've had, even in my, you know, my own family, there's been times where, you know, everyone's frustrated. No one knows what the future holds exactly. And students are scared. I have three children and they're all doing some sort of form of online education. And I'm home, my husband's home, and we're both working. And and there's added stresses. They miss that social connection. And when you're in school, you also get that, that praise from your teacher. You get that reinforcement from your peers. And I think schools are trying to figure out how to connect with parents and students and potentially could, you know, just like there is, you know, an honor role in school or a role model in school, then perhaps think about things like that and how to recognize students' behavior or attendance or, you know, positive contributions. There are chat rooms that are being set up in some schools so that students could talk to each other. That, of course, should be monitored because you want to make sure that, unfortunately, you know, when you're looking at things through the eyes of a lawyer, you're always thinking about the things that could go wrong and making sure. sure that students are behaving in an appropriate way. And if they're utilizing the school's resources for electronic communication, whether that's chat rooms or direct messages with the teachers or the students or students to students, you want to make sure that that behavior doesn't go over the line, especially when you're talking about older students, because we've seen a rise in schools contacting us because of inappropriate images being shared, sexting, and things of that nature where I think sometimes it's, you know, it's just shared between two students that are in a consensual relationship, but that gets shared with the school community at a large. And sometimes that even goes into the area of being classified as child pornography, mm-hmm. which is something that I don't think anyone's really thinking about when, you know, especially yeah. when you're, you know, 16 years old or 14, 15 years old, if you're sharing images or pictures. But it is, you know, the laws have not changed or evolved as much. And there are real consequences that come from students sharing images and students videotaping themselves. So it's something that definitely, I think, in this day and age, that schools should be mindful of. And, you know, students and parents need to think about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's hard to walk that line, (laughs) you know, between giving giving your kids the space they need, but also not. Right. It's just something that it's hard to imagine because this has just changed from day to day and week to week and things that students are doing and the ways that they're communicating are just so different than they have been. Yeah. But they could have, you know, real long-term consequences. They could have legal consequences. They could have the ability, you know, if things that people are posting could affect, you know, different schools they could get into, different Mm -hmm. jobs opportunities that they have later on, their reputation. So it's definitely a real challenge that I think is, is worth spending some time thinking through. Yeah. Wow. That is great advice. What other forms or areas do you see where discipline might come into play? Good question, and it's something that I've, I've been thinking about. I was thinking plagiarism would be potentially being something that schools pay more attention to. And by plagiarism, I, I mean students not handing in their own work, either copying other students' work or just doing a general Google search when they get a question from teachers mm-hmm. and just copying and pasting like a Wikipedia entry. And sometimes 
plagiarism or doing something like that might just be appropriate, or sometimes it would be, you know, completely inappropriate. And I, I don't think that people know enough about when teachers are giving a student an assignment that they want, a lot of them say, you know, it's okay to have sources. And sometimes Google does that or Wikipedia or other sources of information available online will give us sources, but it's not okay, at least in my mind, to just copy and paste an entry from somebody else's source and put, and, you know, hand that in as assignment. So I think it's something that maybe is worth educating students and families about what plagiarism is and Mm -hmm. why it's not okay and consequences that might result from it. I was trying to think of like, maybe it's even worth putting together a small code of conduct, like an online version where you just drill down on a couple of pieces that might come up, you know, you know, as I mentioned, cyberbullying, plagiarism, and I'll run through a couple more with you, just so so parents and and students have that on their radar, know what's expected of them. And, you know, because sometimes a code of conduct, you know, could be pages and pages and nobody's looking at it, especially now. And I'm thinking about things that could happen only because I want to create a positive learning environment for everyone. And you don't want these things to come up and then students or families to say, you didn't give me notice. I didn't even know that that was wrong. So I think maybe it's worth spending a little bit of time being a little bit proactive and saying things like, you know, informing people about cyberbullying and the harmful nature of it and what could happen, you know, explaining what plagiarism is. And as you know, as you mentioned, your own daughters, just what online lessons look like and what could possibly be disruptive behavior in that setting. You know, students calling out during the instruction or if you have an image of a teacher on a screen and then other students around that screen, you could see students just making faces or, mm-hmm. you know, doing, putting up funny things and distracting or screaming or just, you know, trying, maybe being silly or maybe being intentionally disruptive. But, yeah. but it's just, it's going to be so hard to focus. So the best environment that the school could create to try to limit that disruptive behavior, I think, you know, everyone will, will benefit from. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I I love the point about be proactive rather than reactive because it's it's just thoughtful and it makes it safe. It makes it safe for the educators, I would think, to know that these things have been thought out and laid out and communicated. Yeah, I was just thinking as we're talking and, you know, another another thing that just like jumps out at me, besides handing in an instruction, handing in assignments, teachers are probably going to be giving exams. And it hasn't happened, at least in my house yet, but I think as, as the time elapses and, you know, more and more students are out of school for longer and longer, that students are going to be expected to take online exams or hand in assignments that are worth points on a grade average. And we want to be very careful that students are completing that work themselves yeah. and that students are answering the questions. And there's not... <laughs> either an older brother or sister that's giving them the answers or they're not texting their friends <laughs> during that time and getting the answers because it is important for, you know, for everyone that students are able to complete the assignments because otherwise teachers don't know that they've retained that information and it's not going to help them the next year when we're hopefully back in school if they, you know, were cheating on that test and didn't actually learn that information and the teacher won't have the benefit of knowing that they should repeat that material for them or for, you know, more, more students in the class. So I think it's important to discuss what cheating means in an online forum and making sure that students are actually completing the homework or their tests, exams themselves, not with a parent who's, you know, behind them and, you know, fixing that. And, you know, as a parent, sometimes I see my, my children's work and I, and I want to just change it, but it's, but it's not <laughs> yeah. good for them. You know, right. sometimes you go into a class and you see like 
a take-home project, and you could you could see which which students actually completed the assignments themselves, and yeah. which parents, you know, all of a sudden did this amazing diorama. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've all been to that back-to-school night. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes I see these things, and I'm like, it looks like they've professionally done, and yeah. I cannot imagine a third grader has done that. <laughs> so, just thinking, you know, more broadly, is you know, help. It's empowering the students to do that themselves and explaining that that's not in their best interest to the parents and the students, maybe even having a, you know, a webinar or an online forum where you, you explain the new roles, explain what behavior is expecting of them, and explain why. You know, I don't think anyone's doing this because they want to punish students or provide consequences, but they really they want to be able to further their mission in educating students in a positive learning environment. Yeah, yeah, I love the webinar idea for parents. It's a great Great thought. I have a, a funny question, maybe, but I think each state is a little bit different. So in New York, are students right now learning new material and being tested on it? The reason I ask is I'm in Massachusetts, and in Massachusetts, so far, the message is it's purely enrichment. There's no new learning happening. I think that this is evolving. I think that no mm, one yeah. expected schools to be closed for as long as they've been closed or as long as maybe they're expected to be closed. So I could say just from you know my own experience is that, no, I haven't seen new material that's been delivered. Okay. But I think there's an expectation that that's going. And just speaking to my peers and my friends who have children and so talking to school leaders, there is the move to start providing online learning, like in a in a meaningful way, where I'm hoping that the new material is taught. Yeah. At the same time, I, I don't know how fruitful that's going to be, and I don't know, especially when you get to the older grades and you're talking about advanced placement exams. Yeah. I've heard from, from, from people that, that only the material that's been already taught in school will be on the advanced placement exams. That could change. Yep. I think others listening might also wonder where things stand and like everything else with this, it's just constantly evolving. Yes. <laughs> if we, you know, if you were to have to do it, impose a disciplinary measure, like what does that even look like? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I mean, I mean, common ones, you know, as you're, when you're younger, when you're in a younger grade, you maybe you would exclude a student from an extracurricular activity or a club or mm-hmm. not let them participate in something, a positive thing that happens at school, potentially take away field trip or, you know, egregious behavior in some situations. Mm-hmm. But how do you do that? You know, there is, there are no field trips right now. Right. You know, there are no extracurricular activities. Like, is there, are there consequences that you could do? Is there online detention? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I mean, suspending a student is something that, that a lot of schools do for, for different behaviors. Sometimes there's a range of behaviors that would result in a suspension, whether or not it's a one-day suspension or, you know, more than that. But even in a situation where you suspend a child from a traditional school setting, you're still responsible for providing that child with alternative instruction mm-hmm. in a meaningful way, oh, okay. which would mean generally, is, which I advise my clients, is that it's usually two hours of instruction, which is... You know, not just handing in the homework, but actual instruction, whether or not that's videotaped instruction or the different teachers will come into the separate room and provide that student with instruction. So, you know, how does that work? You know, if you were going to suspend a child from an online setting, you're still providing them with instruction. So can you suspend them? What does that look like? Right. And if there's potentially like a positive online activity, yes, potentially you could you could exclude them from that activity. You could limit their ability to, you know, maybe chat in an online forum if the school's sponsoring it and they're not behaving correctly. Mm-hmm. 
I guess for more, just thinking out loud here, but for more serious offenses, you could decide to defer the suspension. Just taking a step back here, before you're implementing a long-term suspension in New York, you have to hold a formal disciplinary hearing Mm -hmm. and provide the student with a number of different due process procedures and protections before you're taking away days of instructions and and suspension and even expulsion. But you couldn't do that, um, I don't think, in a meaningful way electronically. So you could decide, and I don't think this has really been done before, but you could decide to send notice that the student has violated the code of conduct and explain why, um, but you're going to defer holding that hearing until such time the school resumes so that the students are still provided with the due process and you hold off on imposing any disciplinary measure mm-hmm. until, you know, the student has the opportunity to have all those different due process protections in place. Okay. But of course, you know, these are challenging times. So, you know, I would hope that schools understand, and I think that they do understand that there's so much going on with all these kids and their behavior might be a reflection of being scared or mm-hmm. having, you know, a chaotic environment to do their work. And I think everybody is mindful of that. But at the same time that, you know, the schools are responsible for making sure that, overall education is being delivered in a meaningful and productive and positive environment. So I think you have to balance all of those different pieces and try to create a positive disciplinary environment and a positive learning environment for, you know, all scholars, all students, so that everyone can come out of this in a more positive place. Right, right. And like you said, regardless of how challenging specific situations may be, it can't be allowed that one student can threaten another or, you know, even threaten a teacher's ability to teach, even if it is in an online setting. Sometimes when you're imposing disciplinary measures, they're not suspension, they're not detention, they're just, you know, some more of a restorative justice approach, like mediation, Mm -hmm. and just speaking, and and that could still happen. You know, there's no reason why mediation can't happen between two students and a teacher. You could either do it by webinar, or you could do it by phone, but there's still the ability to have that connection and explain why the behavior that one student did to another is harmful. And, you know, what can we do to reinforce that? Yeah. And from there, if the teachers had that kind of virtual meeting with a student and detected that there might be deeper issues going on, can the school provide some kind of teletherapy for the student if they feel like it's appropriate? They can. They can. I'm glad that you mentioned that. And, you know, a lot of the different rules around before, you know, COVID-19 crisis, there was limitations on your ability to do that in a remote setting because of the, all the different HIPAA concerns about privacy and the FERPA concerns about privacy. But the federal government has relaxed a lot of those regulations, and they're allowing providers, school counselors, and therapists to provide mental health services through a number of different approved means. They can do it virtually, telepathic. That would work. Yeah. All right. That's great. So you can, you know... Ideally, in some ways, maybe you're not necessarily disciplining, but you're actually getting to the real root of the behavior. Right. And I think when I talk about discipline, sometimes schools have an approach that is more restorative justice, meaning that they have all these different ways to try to have students abide by their code of conduct. And maybe it's a reflection essay explaining you know, why they did what they did or trying to get to the root of, of why they did what they did. And maybe there are different things that they could do in the community. It's something that I think is worth exploring and spending some time because you don't have, the students also don't have the ability to go to speak to a dean or speak to a guidance counselor like they would before. So 
So everybody just has to take a step back, and I know everybody is trying to do all the different things right, but there's just so many pieces to it. So I think it's worth thinking about these things, being proactive, explaining what disciplinary rules you expect in a remote online setting so that students and parents understand the expectations and try to abide by them and, and understand why you know being disruptive online could really be difficult for the teacher and from some students that are really trying to concentrate, but that person's behavior just really makes it hard to do that. Yeah, yeah. Very good point on that. How about attendance issues? Are teachers taking attendance in these virtual classes? My understanding is that they are, that they're tracking it in what form. I think that has varied, but I think teachers are trying to track attendance. It's possible that that tracking of the attendance might be needed later when they're talking about state funding and getting funding from states, but they also still have compulsory education laws, which require students to attend classes, and attending classes now means attending classes online, so I think they are keeping track of which students are attending or which students are logging in, which students are handing in assignments. And there might be a responsibility to contact parents if they see a student's not attending. I think that that would probably be the first step that I'd recommend, sending home a notice, sending home an email, or trying to get a virtual meeting with the parents and potentially the student, depending on their age, to understand the importance of it. But of course, you know, you have to also be mindful that it could be technology issues. Not everyone is set up for Wi-Fi. I know the schools are doing a pretty good job of handing out technology resources, but I know that there are still some connection issues and some students aren't able to log on. So we have to, you know, try to figure out why the student's not attending. And maybe they are attending and you don't see them for whatever reason, but they, schools still have the responsibility for compulsory education laws. And it is possible that you have to make a call to ACS if you think that a student has the means to attend school but isn't. Of course, you know, we want to try to limit that, but it's something that schools still have a responsibility to do, to track it and to try to have students attend as much as they can. Okay. Okay. In wrapping up, what would you say are your sort of, um, you've given a lot of great advice for schools, but what would you say your biggest take-homes are for schools to be considering at this phase? You know, it is constantly evolving, and a lot of our first initial stories were capturing the the dramatic changes, and now that we're kind of getting this off and running, what take-home advice do you have for schools? I think it's important at this time, you know, I think as a school's been out for a little bit of time and, and everyone's paying attention to how this is affecting everybody in all these different ways. I think if somebody at the school or a combination of people at the school could take some time and just try to think about what disciplinary environment, what kind of online environment you want for your schools um, in this day and age, because that's something that people spend a lot of time on thinking about their mission when they put together a charter application. And each year that, that sometimes gets changed a little bit to try to figure out what, how you want your children to behave, you know, what kind of messages you're sending them. And now that things have shifted a little bit, you probably still have that same mission. And delivering that message might get a little bit different, might be a little bit more difficult, but it might be a good time to think about creating new policies, you know, just like a short, shortened versions of the behavior system that you want in place that you expect students to abide by. And of course, that would change a little bit if you're talking about an elementary or middle school student or a high school student. But I think it's, it's worth setting up 
that understanding of the behavior that's expected of them and hopefully setting up a positive and productive learning environment, you know, in doing that. You know, there are parent-teacher conferences that are, aren't happening, maybe having a parent meeting, a webinar where you're explaining parents and students could explain, understand, and also offer, you know, as you mentioned before, the mental health opportunities that are available to them. Because I don't know if there's possible that students in this day and age want counseling that didn't receive them before. Mm-hmm. And knowing that, that it's available virtually is something that I think might be, be helpful to help students manage their anxieties and help them try to figure out how they could be productive in a remote environment. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Jamie, thank you so much. You've offered a lot of great advice. And for our listeners, you can also look to our website, www.bglaw.com. And we post a number of client alerts from our New York attorneys, as well as other education attorneys. And those are circulated not only on the website, but via our social media accounts on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter by searching Barton Gilman. Jamie, thank you again for joining me today. My thoughts are with you and your family and our New York team because I know New York is struggling and I think everybody is thinking of everyone they know there and wishing you just the very best and to be healthy and safe. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, making sure that everybody's physical and mental health is adhered to during this time is is very important. But thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades including Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, the Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.